Welcome, everybody, to the episode 12 of the Untitled Theme Entertainment Design Show podcast. This is uh, from the vault uh, from last year, 2020, where we did the 20th anniversary of the Men in Black Alien Attack Dark Ride Interactive Dark Ride at Universal Studios Orlando with our friend and yours, Dave Cobb, and myself, and a few other special guests as well. So uh, please enjoy this look back to one of the greatest interactive dark rides ever conceived. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. We did it. How's there, how are you doing, Andy? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm living the dream. Living the are dream. We all? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a, a, a jam-packed show um, today. We're at a new time. How does how does 6 p.m., 9 p.m. Eastern Mondays work for you? This seemed to work pretty okay. I think it's fine. Yeah, so the problem with Sundays is that it was like I had to stay, we had to, you know, stay moderately, you know, sober to do the show that late and be cohesive. So it's nice to be able to relax a little bit on a Monday night and um, kick back a little bit. So we have... Um, we have a few guests waiting in the wings. We're going to talk about Men in Black, Alien Attack. It is their 20th anniversary. Um, so why don't we, why don't we, would you mind setting it up? I mean, you worked on this attraction. Like what, can you set it up for a few minutes and then we'll bring everybody on for a little chat? Well, 21 years ago, uh, I was so young and thin. <laughs> and we all were. Um, especially you, you were like a child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I, uh, I, I was brought on by Dave Cobb um, pretty late in the process after they realized that they couldn't afford uh, the Danny Elfman music. Uh, <laughs> and I was brought on because I had uh, video game and theme park experience to some degree um, working at, at Walt Disney Imagineering uh, for a little while, uh, just a few years before. And uh, as a student of theme park music uh, and working on, you know, some projects here and there, but nothing on my own. But uh, so, yeah, they brought me on and I scored the pre-shows first, I think, if I remember. And then I did the music for the ride and then the music for the safety video, the Doofus and Do-Right video. We did that uh, a little bit later. But uh, yeah, it, it, they uh, hired this uh, 25-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah or an 80 million dollar attraction now look at you right <laughs> doing the same stuff yeah. uh, that's that's awesome yeah um, no, it, it uh, definitely started my whole career in theme parks so i mean you just mentioned the name let's bring him on uh the world yeah. famous dave cobb hey y'all i need an audio track that can just go Woo! Yeah, you need a soundboard yeah you need one of those soundboard things <laughs> yeah welcome to the show dave it's great to see you good to see uh, you so we you know here's the fun thing is that you did a, a very extensive an hour and a half alien attack live stream no thanks to you i mean thanks to you jesus you did all the fancy button pushing oh it's it, it's it's actually really it's a lot more fun for me to be behind the scenes pulling the strings than to be having to do it all at the same time so sure. it was, i was it was and actually i have a guy for that um today 
Brian, everybody here. This Brian. is everybody. He's in, he's in the back behind the screen. Um, so, so I'd, li I'd like to try not to repeat everything that was already said because we have a whole year of content, right? Sure. I could have talked another hour for that. I yeah. mean, and I got stuff teed up. I got uh, at least an hour or two video and short segments of like mock-ups and stuff that I'm going to roll out. It's just, you know, it's 20 years is a long time, but it's also like I've had this box of videotapes sitting on the side of my desk and underneath it for two decades. Be like, oh, I should, I should cut that stuff together. I should get to that. And you just, you never find the time. And now it's like, well, I got the time. Yeah. And it happens to coincide with the 20th anniversary. So yeah, I mean, there's there's so many great stories to tell. So um, how how did, I would love to hear, you know, what was the assignment and the requirements that led to this attraction to be built? Well, the the, the first thing to know is it was started very quickly. Uh, the uh, um, so we're talking like uh, Men in Black the movie came out summer of '97. And I was contacted by Phil Hedema about the gig when I was working at Landmark at the time in like November of 97. I went out to lunch with him. And what he explained was that the, uh, you know, they had Islands of Adventure coming. Uh, it was going to open in 99, summer 99. And they re and so it was full steam ahead, right? They were um, a, a little over about two years, year and a half from opening. And they, the business analysts were like, wait a minute, we've got a major theme park opening and we don't have anything planned for a year afterwards for the, for the studio park. And they were worried about sort of, you know, leeching off their own attendance. And so they realized they needed to fast track an e-ticket like that. And so that plot of land had been looked at. And we talked about this on the, on the, on the live stream, but it had been looked at for uh, um, Jurassic Park originally before it got its own land and a couple of other, other attractions. But it was basically like, we need an e-ticket and it needs to open in, you know, spring, it's spring, basically. Originally, they wanted to open Christmas, by the way. No, um, yeah, they always do. It's just not going <laughs> to happen. And so we had, uh, from the time I was hired to opening day is like 23 months. And wow. so that's insanity. I mean, to build a whole attraction from scratch is, was, was really ambitious. So what, what started it was really like, I won't say desperation, but it was certainly like, Oh crap! Uh, uh, from a from a strategic standpoint, the park needed another family friendly ticket that they could market. And uh, um, what I was told when I was hired is that as soon as Men in Black opened, like it, I don't know if you knew this, but it, it played in theaters for like six or eight months. Like it, yeah. it it had a really long run, and this is back when movies could play that long. Really. But they knew it was popular, and you know they had their eyes on it. So they had already started tentative discussions with Sony. But by the time I hired the group, it was done. So it was it was those two things, really. So I have uh, one more question before I want to kind of have Andy come in and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah. your 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 treatment and screenplay for that attraction was was online, and I've read it, and I, I love it. I look at it all the time. It's really cool. I, I don't know if you share that nowadays or not, but <laughs> it was really awesome that you did. Um, so I, I do have a question for you about that, which is how many – how many versions of it, full-blown different versions, did you go through um, while working on it? And who were you kind of working with on it? Who were you collaborating well, with? Well, the um, so, you know, these things start out as treatments before they're scripts. They start out as, as treatments and treatments. Um, and uh, if you include those, I would probably say there was maybe 15 or 20 drafts. Um, 
and that's everything. That's soup to nuts from beatments to, okay, then we have treatments for here's the, the elevator show and here's the pre-show and here's the loading video and there's treat and here's the main ride. Each of those had their own treatments and then each one of those gets a script. I would say all told, all of that is probably about 15 or 20 versions. Um, and I was working on that with a couple of people. So Craig Hanna, who is still my boss to this day, <laughs> I think, well, uh, he was one of the heads of Universal Creative at the time. And so I was, uh, Phil was my big boss, but Craig um, did the initial Blue Sky on this attraction and, uh, uh, and, and sort of handed me, tossed me the football to run with it. So I would work with him and check, check in with him on the script. I also had two um, screenwriter friends of mine here in L.A., Sean Abley and Tracy Berna, who were both uh, comedy writers, um, mm -hmm. helped me out. And so because I knew I had a lot of writing to do. And so they helped with the pre-shows. They helped with sort of joke punch up, you know. And then the big thing about the script was once you get somebody like Will Smith involved, mm -hmm. right, he is a comedy powerhouse. And so all the stuff we wrote for him was a framework at best. And we knew that, like we tried to write very funny stuff, yeah. but nothing that's in the attraction today was what we put on paper, not because of his ego, but because he came to it and said, he literally like asked, he's like, can I bring my comedy writer with me and, and work on this material? And we're like, yes, yeah. <laughs> we were hoping you would do that. And so, yeah, it, 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 if you include that, it's probably 20 or 30 drafts because he did a couple of passes before he showed up for the day. Cause we only had him for a day to shoot. And then on the set, his guy was off off camera, like shouting ideas to him, cracking him up. And so a lot of the a lot of the stuff that like my favorite one of all, somebody asked me what was my favorite of the endings because I think we're trying to figure out the other day. It was thirty six because it's high, medium, low score, comparing two vehicles and compare and contrast. I think that comes up to thirty six. I'm a terrible math mathematician, but my favorite one. He's like. Y'all were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all over here were like, ah, oh, they shooting, they shooting. Like, <laughs> I think we barely got a clean take of that because we're all like cracking up on set because it was we, we didn't see it coming. And that's the best stuff in that ride is all Will Smith bringing his mojo, you know, and which okay. is a blessing in an, ex an experience like that. Yeah, at the peak of his powers. Oh yeah, height of his powers. Yeah. So bring in Andy. So you went from Will Smith to Andy. <laughs> how did that? Go? How did that go? Like, what's this? I'd love to hear the story. I'd love to Andy. You know, how did you guys? I, I, you you met somehow? Like, what was it like working together? This was your first big break. Like, I think there's a lot to talk about here. I'm gonna hand it over to you, Andy. Though you lived it. I did live it. Uh, like I said before, we were also young and thin. <laughs> and. Um, but uh, yeah, I had met Dave uh, some years earlier uh, through some architecture stuff that I was working on for a professor. And uh, Dave was working, uh, were you a show writer by then or were you still an intern? I was a show writer and sort of uh, fledgling creative director at uh, Landmark, yeah. Uh, but we met at Landmark and I was uh, getting photos for a book and things like that. And then we just became friends and started hanging out and then five years later or so, four years, four or five years later, uh, uh, when they realized that they couldn't afford the uh, uh, Danny Elfman music uh, and they were rapidly running out of money anyway, that uh, they needed somebody good and cheap. And that was my specialty. At the time. <laughs> Andy, you got to help me. Yeah. 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 I still remember how much I got paid too. I, I don't know if I can reveal that. It was this, there's not a lot, not a lot at all. 
Yeah, you know what though, uh, with with the evolution of the industry and uh, how many how many just the sheer like volume of composers there are now, uh, and how much easier it is to produce music, um, you know, that number wouldn't be too shocking today. Yeah, right. You know, uh, for just, for like just the attraction or just the pre-show videos, but uh, you know, it was it was five figures low five figures yeah yeah and, and you know i think one of the neatest things about it was how much of it i mean you know a lot of people think oh there's or orchestra in there and it's like that's all samples that entire thing is all samples i was on i was on the unofficial universal podcast uh, earlier today and we were talking about that they i mean it was it was not only was it weird to talk about the attraction again so much but uh, uh they they wanted to uh they wanted to get really granular and i was talking about some of the equipment i used and and like i i remarked how like wow like for 1999 sample technology it sounds pretty good it does it's 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 miraculous i yeah. i still listen to it now and go damn you you were manipulating some i mean again I, i've you know, both of us have gotten to work recently, like on the Warner Brothers project with you know, the Seattle Symphony Orchestra and, and, and 80 pieces and electronic samples and things. And there's still parts of Men in Black where I'm like, that is a really, really, really good fake out, right? <laughs> like, it's it, it, it hits the right spots, you know? Well, I mean, uh, I think it was the... Uh, um, it was the... Peter Seidlicek strings that I was using and some of the orchestra that the, the trombones or with the, the staccato trombones that we use for that bop, 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 right. uh, still sound great. Well, and, and the thing is a lot of people, a lot of people will assume if it's, I've actually had people ask me this, like, oh, well, if it's electronic, it's, you know, it, it must be easier. And it's like, no, getting something that polished and big sounding requires not just mixing and, and, and you know, and, 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 and effects and things, but understanding the limitations of samples. And, and yeah. I think that's something you know really, really brilliantly, is that you know exactly what those samples can do and can sound like. And well, you push them to their edge, you know? I, yeah, I had just come off of doing a couple of uh, animated uh, shows for Savan and Fox, Fox Kids, Fox Family. And, like, you know, I really had to maximize the potential of, of everything that i had um <laughs> judd <laughs> <laughs> judd <laughs> i mean sure i mean where's the line yeah uh but uh yeah i had just come off of doing some some really low budget tv animation shows and like you know i had really fast turnarounds and they had a really high standard of quality so i really really it was a real trial by fire and like it really uh, primed me for you know, doing a, a, a bigger project like this, you know, a really truly cinematic kind of project. I remember you sent me something. Was it, I know you sent me your Goosebumps game as a sample, but I remember there was something called Flying Over Something that was from a game. It was the Flying Over London. That was the, that was for a, a World War One biplane fighting game for, yeah. um, for the PS2. I yeah, I, I remember you sending me that as a sample, mm. and I remember playing it in the car going to lunch with Phil at full volume on the car stereo, and he was like, these are samples? And I'm like, yep, this is the guy we want to use. 
So wow. that's that that I think that demo is what sold him on it at least. But but I I remember uh, playing that for a lot of people going, this is the guy. So. I, it's funny. I recently, I recently listened to that piece again uh, a few months ago, and I was just like, "Wow, okay." It's, it's a really great piece. That, and you know, the other one I always tell people, like, remember the the uh, fantasy Disneyland fiftieth theme that you came up with? Yes. Yeah. Oh. That's still one of my favorite things ever. The fan, hey, fan nerds out there, you need to find this because it never got used for anything. But oh my god, I loved it so much. It's on my website. It's on Pachinko Media. Oh, good, 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 good. Seek it out. It's great. So, Patrick, you're muted. There you go. Hi, hi. I'm, that takes me back to earlier today on every conference call I was on. You're muted. <laughs> um, so we have Jason in the wings. Um, Andy, would you mind giving a nice introduction to a Jason? Absolutely. Um, Jason GP is a good friend of mine. Hi, Jason. Hey, how's it going? Jason was uh, a day one pre-opening uh, operations uh, cast member, team member, uh, who yeah. and you ended up writing uh, some manuals for the ride or something, if I remember. Yes. And what's mm -hmm. funny is that, is that Jason and I, we've been friends now for about 10 years, uh, and we, he didn't, you know, realize that, uh, you know, like how funny it is that, you know, you sat and listened to or stood and listened to that music for three years. Yeah. You know, not knowing <laughs> that... Brilliant. Not knowing that you know, years and years later we'd be friends, right? Yeah, same thing here. Like I, I met Jason, I guess through either on track teams or through uh, Larry Wyatt or something, right? Or 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 um, yeah. Ty, Ty, and, yeah, before that mm -hmm. as a show writer, and you know, we he sort of let me know that oh yeah, and I worked on Men in Black Year One, so we were there at the same time, but we didn't really know each other. Yeah, so the moment where I kind of knew who you were was when you said oh yeah, and I wrote the the manual. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> because, because we got the manual like we don't universal creative doesn't really do the ops manual that's operating yeah. duty but they yeah. sent it my way uh, with a note saying we think you'll enjoy this and i read it and it's literally like it's written by zed like it's literally yeah in, it's an in-universe operations manual yes. which yeah. doesn't happen a lot and so yeah. i was so tickled by it it was so great so, so that's the thank you. Uh, that was the that was the theming manual. Um, later, uh, later in my Universal career, I ended up writing um, the a lot of the training manuals that went on. Um, but I also my passion was always working on the theming manuals themselves and how the operators can add to the story that was already put in by you guys um, early on. So, uh, so yeah, that theming manual. I just tried my best to, to kind uh, of funny. One of my first jobs when I was at Universal was on Back to the Future Hollywood was installing that and I was a lowly coordinator and uh -huh. I was tasked with writing the ops manual and I wrote it as if I did exactly what you did. I'm like, well, it's, it's from Doc, right? Doc Brown's got to write this. So yes. I, exactly. I don't know if they still use that one to this day. It's probably been changing up. Well, it's obviously since <laughs> now, but, but I did a bunch of writing for that back then. So, uh -huh. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it, it's one of those things where even down to ops employees, and 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 the, the I get the, I know the fans know this, but but the wider park audience like what makes the haunted mansion memorable for me beyond it's the haunted mansion it's when the the, the host does the spiel and gives you the the dark look and says bid please drag your bodies into the dead so, like yep. when when the ops employees like working there so much because of the, the care of the attraction it's it's it it's it's a really a win win and so I mm -hmm. I love that that happened in MIB I I. We didn't plan it. Like we didn't edict it. We didn't want it. We didn't train everybody to be that. 
But the fact that everybody sort of falls in line and wants to be an agent makes my heart sing. It's great. Absolutely. One of my favorite things was working in pre-show. I had this whole thing where I had a lab coat and kind of um, Jerry Lewis Nutty Professor glasses. And I would talk talk like this. Okay, everybody, we're going to welcome to the universe and you. Welcome. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. And uh, went through the whole spiel. And during the start of it, I went back through the curtain. I changed out into my MIB jacket and my glasses. And by the time the tape winds down and the elevator doors open, I burst out of the curtain. All business. Everybody in the elevator. You're, oh, you're, that's, you're trainees now. Oh, that's great. I'm not wearing that's amazing. Let me ask. Oh, sorry. Um, one more thing. I just want to. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, Dave. <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. Uh, one of my biggest delights is seeing um, seeing recent videos where I see that uh, the current team members are now doing that as well. That's they're, fantastic. They've kept that tradition going all these years. That's amazing. How? Yep. Um, like, were guests really fooled? Do they think they were going to go through the archway that said University? Did they think that was real? Um, some of them figured it out, especially rewriters. Right, of course. They were they would just stand there like this is where I'm going. Yeah, right. But, um, the fun part was to kind of guide everybody's attention to the curtains. Like I would yeah, right. get everybody to stand but look at the curtains, look over here, pay no attention to the uh moving wall behind the curtain. <laughs> I I just remember uh like going through all the old Epcot attractions in my head going how do I create? Actually, the one that probably had the most effect on it was, um, I think, probably the uh, uh, the Living Seas, and it rained and rained and rained. <laughs> the deluge, right? Like that was, that was so ponderous, but it, I imprinted on it as a kid. So I remember playing that back in my head, like since the beginning of recorded time, like yeah. yes. basically, and, mm -hmm. and that was the inspiration for that. Was how do I make it sound so like? Optimistic but ponderous. <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> and I love, I love it. You know, it just. Uh, I talked about uh, uh, in the other show today. I did. Uh, we talked about the marathon of mayhem and how Universal is kind of the anti Disney yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, and and how Men in Black sort of like, you know, almost started that tradition a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. and like. You know, they used to poke fun at Disney a little bit. They had the 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 the, the um the, I think there was a pair of, of bitten mouse ears in the Jaws attraction, like floating in the water way back when. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And there were underhanded ones. And everybody now they've got you know the Shrek posters that are all. But we were first. Like our posters that Ray did, um, are are were amazing, right? And and the and I actually saw fan art the other day where somebody had redrawn the. Are we alone? Of course we are, with the the, the, the son and the, and the father standing there. They redrew that whole thing. It's on Redbubble or something. You buy it on a T-shirt. And it, it blows my mind. It makes me so happy that people latch onto that because when we landed on that as a bookend, that it was going to be this attraction, we're like, what are they going to tell you when they neuralize you? That's, that's important, right, in Men in Black lore. In the movies, the story they make up after they zap you is just as important as the fact that you're being zapped. And so... Yes, we wanted to send you back into the remind you of the thing that you were at the beginning, and it's a bookend for people who don't understand, who maybe don't know neuralization or the ins and outs of the movie. But the, the tone of the script that's up there, where it says, "Are we alone? Of course we are." Like we wanted it to be sort of optimistic in its nihilism, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, 
It's like, don't worry about aliens, you know. And and that kind of snark was not something you, you wouldn't really see that. You didn't see a lot of it at uh, at Disney. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I remember the first time I was ever in a Disney attraction thinking, oh, they're their sense of humor is getting more modern. That was Statler and Waldorf at the end of Muppets 4D when he says, if you have time to go to the, the bathroom or the ne- before the next show, we can't go over four, we're bolted to the seats. Like, when has a Disney attraction been postmodern and referenced itself? <laughs> Never before that, you know? So I have a question for, um, it might be Dave, actually, primarily, most likely Dave. Barry, I've always um, thought that your attraction was like one of the most cohesive theme park experiences from the time you're out into the area leading to the trend, you know, the whole Epcot World's Fair farce that leads you downstairs to the multiple pre-show staged elements. And then like you were even talking about bringing you out of that and ending the ride as if you had just got off a World's Fair um, experience that I don't think that's ever been done in a theme park. And I feel like just the, uh, the amount of hurdles it may have been to try to tell people that this is actually going to make sense. Like, what was that like? Like, it's it's pretty out there, very self, you know, referential and like very clever, you know. Like, how like how did that go down? Well, thank you for that. I mean, a lot of that is, man, is 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 the passion of the team and everybody involved, and and the passion of guys like Phil and Craig who were very story oriented. Um, but also, it's just luck. Like, you you you, you create some of these things, like the the, the the fact that it's in the World's Fair. And the fact that there's these 60s references, like that's, you and I know that intrinsic to the movie, but not everybody that walks into that park is going to have that kind of breadth of knowledge of design and aesthetic mm-hmm. and story. And so some of it is just, you're, you're just hoping, you know, you hope that they get it. And I actually, I forget where I heard this before, but it's, a, I think it's a truism for attractions and movies and things in that. In creating a, in creating something, you have to be faithful to the faithful, hmm. and that putting your trust in the people that really know it is a fine line between that and making it accessible to somebody who doesn't know it. But it's it's again, it's that it's that classic engagement pyramid of waiter, swimmer, diver, right? And there's going to be ninety percent of your audience is just touch the toe. They probably see Men in Black maybe once, you know. Then there's people who've seen it a half dozen times. Then there's the super fans who know the whole thing. You have to sort of feel to all of them. And so that cohesiveness and self-contained world of the attraction was, yeah, by design, in order to check all the boxes for all of that audience, right? Like I explained this on the on the on the um, on the, 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 the live stream that somebody asked about um, the you know the, the towers that they had never seen that the third one was broken off, right? After 20 years of the attraction, they didn't realize that the third one was gone. And we're like, okay, well. Here, you know why, instinctively, now that I've told you, because it disappears in the movie, because it was a spaceship, um, and there were three in the real tower. But we actually talked this through, that one of the great things about doing it the way we did was, even if you don't know that the World's Fair has three towers, you remember two towers from the movie. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not a huge fan, even if, you don't, even if you don't remember that Edgar gets in one and it breaks off, you remember that image in the mural in the immigration room yeah. of looking up at the two towers. So it works in a meta way. It works for non-fans. When you walk up the direction, oh, right, it's those. But if you are a fan, you go, oh, that's missing. Ah, oh, there's a third one. Oh, that's what Ed used. Like, we have those discussions. That's yeah. like, I try to tell people, these are the kind of conversations we have for these things. 
and we get paid for it, which is fun. Yep. But it's Absolutely. but it's not just about serving fan service. It partially is that you need to be faithful to those fans. But you know what? You already have them. You're already hooked them. Mm-hmm. You need to give them enough to feel like they're in the know, but you also need to put in enough that you are inviting people into that world in a way that does not depend on their knowledge. And so, so everything you're talking about in that bookend was in order to serve both of those masters. That's great. Well, we have a, a viewer answer here from Randy from YouTube. Are the worms in the queue line break rooms, break room on the way to the loading platforms replicas or real models from the movie? Always wanted to know. Those are completely bespoke for the ride. They were made by Advanced Animations in Vermont. Um, they were not based even on. We had no. I mean, when you make these things for a movie, they are you know used for a couple of hours with touch-ups in between takes. Um, robotics for uh, a movie and animatronics for a film like that are impossible to use in an attraction because they're just not built for that kind of cycle time. Um, we did not have access to the original molds or anything for anything from the movie because none of that really exists. Um, we actually re- reached out to. Um, um, what's his name? Rick, um, uh, famous makeup guy. He did, did the movie in the features. Rick, uh, uh, Rick Baker. Rick Baker. Thank you. Uh, we actually reached out. He's like, yeah, I got nothing. You know, so <laughs> all of that was hand sculpted in clay and molded, especially for the attraction. Um, the uh, uh, fun fact: the voice of the alien that's of the worm that's talking is the same actor who does Spider-Man and Jonah, J. Jonah Jameson in Spider-Man Next Door. He was a local Orlando guy who did a lot of animation. And he, he did like three voices in Spider-Man. And he, and he was a favorite of Sound Deluxe, who was in Orlando, who did all the recording for us. And so um, he does the, the worm in the break room and the one in the shadow. But the one that's next to him that's just going, mm-hmm, 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 who doesn't talk, that's me. <laughs> uh, and the reason he doesn't talk is it was a, it was a, it was a, a value engineering. Like mm-hmm. we, we, we had two identical heads and both of them could talk. We had to cut some money, so we just cut, we cut the mouth out of one of them, and so one of them just. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, cool. Uh, and do you have a question for? I know you know Dave and all that, but do you have any questions for the for the show? They want to ask Dave. Um. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you know, you know, we've talked about many times is the uh, the problems with the acoustics. I mean, since this is kind of a designy show. Uh, you know, the acoustics of that warehouse show building uh, were a nightmare for audio. Um, at, at any stage, uh, was there a plan to enclose the scenes or have higher walls or acoustical treatments, uh, you know, between the show scenes at all or doors even? Or were the I doors cut? I don't recall. I think the discussion was because of the, if, if I remember correctly, it's that. Um, Structural acoustic walls that are part of the architecture um, are possible, and 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 it wasn't a budget decision; it was a time decision. Is that we didn't have a locked track, we didn't have locked target placements. We so much of it was happening so fast that we did not have, we could not plan out structural that went all the way up to the ceiling without extra time. And so uh, it, it, it 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 was really like. We got to build a box, and and it's got to be flexible enough for us because of how fast we're going. We will deal with acoustics later. So there are acoustic materials up there, and there and where there were acoustic, there were material choices made in the facades, and even buffering behind the facades and inside the windows to assist with that. Um, 
And but uh, at the end of the day, it uh, it became a you know hanging curtains between some sets and and, ho- and hoping for the best. But a lot of that, and and again, they 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 knew that that would be an issue because they had the same very similar issue with Cat Hat, um, and and it, it, it did not boil down to anything other than we need more flexibility flexibility in the schedule in order to get everything done. So that's the. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize it was a matter of time and not money. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I didn't... It probably uh, would have turned into money eventually. Like, if we had done it, it probably would have rolled out. Right. And, oh, great. That's always the first thing to get cut is any kind of ac- acoustics treatment. It's like, oh, we don't need that. It'll be fine. Yeah, and then you get on site and you try to mix it. I mean, it's funny. I, I wasn't mixing on-site uh, attractions uh, at that point yet. Um but uh, having mixed a bunch of uh, rides similar to that now, it's just like, man, you know, there, there's really two ways to mix a ride like that. It's either very quiet and detailed uh, and, or just blast it. And you got to just pick one. There's almost no in between. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, it, 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 it's, and, and again, it was also like, it's fair, it was fairly early in Universal's sort of theme park history, right? It's not, there were a lot of great talent, a lot of great talent there, but that that institutional knowledge took a long time to, to settle in. And so now they audio something. It's not that they didn't treat it, you know, with respect when we did it. It was really more schedule, like I said. Like I, I, working back to the future, I, I got a huge um, uh, 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 education about audio on that because those domes were like like sonically perfect, and and a dome environment that's kind of impossible. Because of the way sound bounces around, so so that the engineering to make that work was a, 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 an education. Well, with the speakers behind the dome, the way that they were, the way that they were like uh, angled and 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 aimed um, in that spherical uh, position, were uh, pretty much ideal for for uh, directional sound too. So yeah. that like that's why no matter which position you were in, it sounded fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, it's an art form and a science, and sometimes you have time for both. <laughs> Other times you don't. Yeah. So we have a question here from um, Facebook, um, and I figured all three of you guys could answer. Uh, my favorite alien is a taxi cab alien. He virtually vanishes under the hood. Andy, Dave, and I'll add Jason in. Uh, do you have a favorite alien effect? Hi, um, Tim. Yeah, I, hi, Tim. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do actually. I have. Um, there's one that was uh, so involved in terms of its design, but it goes by so fast that I'm not sure if people quite appreciate it. And that is when when Zed says uh, it's getting a little hairy out here. Let's split up, and the vehicle split up one in an alleyway, one inside the fish market. Um, if if you pay attention, and I'm sure the fans know this, but a lot of guests miss it. You hear an alien going, "Please, please, I'm unarmed." And then he goes, and he unfolds and he's got guns. Well, that took forever to figure out how do we have something that when it's in its down position has a face on it that looks cute and, and unassuming and look, 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 looks like it has its hands up. So, and that was, uh, uh, um, again, that was a Neville Page uh, uh, solution. We had a concept for, we need an alien that looks tiny and cute and bug-like who says, please, please don't shoot. And then goes six against one, huh? And, and, and that's when all the trash cans open and you know and, and you get ambushed that ambush alien took forever to figure out and i love it it's my favorite gag in the ride but i think it's so subtle that it goes over most people's heads 
That's great because it calls back to the animal kingdom with insects that do that, that have yeah, a false right. taste of merit. I love that. I'm like, that's exactly, bugs. That's exactly bugs. what Neville, Neville <laughs> brought us. Neville brought us bugs that had camouflage. You're exactly right. That's he actually mm -hmm. brought research images for, hey, look what bugs do when they want to catch something. And they're like, yeah, could do that. <laughs> it's amazing. I love the just the big eyeball on the window. <laughs> From from the, uh, mm. the, the sort of tentacle alien or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, with the, the two eyeballs. arms out overhead, just like some kind oh. of Lovecraftian horror. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's yeah, and there's, I, there's an I, there's a thing where the engineering of that out is out over the ride track, right? And you know, uh, most fans don't think of that, but the minute you have anything, what's called it's called overhead safety. The minute you have anything that could possibly fall onto guests. Like the engineering for that one piece is way, way, way more involved than the engineering on the one on the right, which is safely off off the track, right? And and it, yeah, it's a it's a way more complicated piece of engineering for that piece than you think, even though it's just a, a very simple move. Jason, what was your favorite? My favorite alien. Um. My favorite alien was the um, one near the end, just before the Wolf Smith screen. Um, I, I can't remember the the actual name. I want to call him the pawn shop alien. He's got oh. a cable out on the street and he's selling stuff and he complains when, when he gets hit. Like, yeah. hey, stop shooting. Stop. What are you doing? Hey, stop. Yeah. He's uh, he's over by the hot dog cart on the left-hand side, right? That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, funny story. Mm -hmm. He was originally supposed to be at the crash. Ah. If you look at his suit, his spacesuit looks like the spaceship. <laughs> and he was supposed to be the pilot of that ship. Hmm. He was for a story moment that was like, um, it, it, he was basically yelling to all the aliens that were escaping, hit the streets, it's the MIB. He was like, the, the, he was supposed to be like the inciting incident. Right? Spray him, everyone. <laughs> yeah, and spray, right. And he was going to be a target, but he that's why he's got so much movement is because he needs to emote, and then he's got to react when he gets hit. Well, mm -hmm. he wouldn't fit. We tried to – where they had designed him for, again, speed of production, speed of design, we just got him in place, and there was no way for it to put him safely out of the motion envelope. And, again, we talked about this on the, on the, on the live stream. The motion envelope of a vehicle is somebody in the 98th percentile male fully stretched out, leaning on one butt cheek, and then spin the vehicle. Well, if you do that, the actual size of the motion envelope for that vehicle is enormous. And so there's nowhere to put him other than up. And so we would have to do this unnatural pile of rubble for him to be up high enough out of view or, or out of out of arm's reach. And then you couldn't see him and he wasn't looking at an eye to eye because he wasn't posed to look down at you. There was all these problems. And so we ended up scrapping the idea and be like, how do we got room for this guy? Let's put him in Times Square. And so we just wrote new dialogue for him and programmed it differently. And yeah, and no one, no one's the wiser, but those are the kind of decisions you have to make, you know? It's almost as if he just ran really far after the crash. Yeah. I like that. I like that idea. Right. That he, he ran from the crap. Yeah. The, other, the other reason, there was also a story reason for it, because the more we looked at it, having that moment of, A, are they going to know he's the pilot? B, does anybody need the, to tell the aliens to run away and hide? It was, it was kind of a group decision, like, 
yeah, we don't necessarily need him here. It's not a big deal that he can't fit. Let's find a better place for him. And we've decided, let's put him in a place where you have a long way to look at him and see his beautiful movements and see shot. That was another one done by um, Advanced Animation. So two different companies did the animatronics, Advanced Animation go to Vermont and Attraction Services uh, here in, in Valencia. And uh, Advanced did the ones that are usually the more complicated movements. They did Bubba and Bob in the immigration room. They did the worms. They did the, that, that pilot guy. It's great work. We got a question from uh, Mr. David Alter. That's got to be a fake name. Uh, similar, no, he's a friend. Uh, similar prop question to the worm guys. Were the weapons on display in the last queue scene before you head to load platform also bespoke a replica mold from the movie? Nothing was available from the film. Film film production companies don't keep that shit. They don't know it's going to be a hit. They don't know they're going to do sequels. So most of that stuff gets shelved or thrown out or rots because it's made to look good on camera. It's not made to last. And so um, none of it. All, so a lot of them are actually the game guns, right? We mm. just made more of those and put them in. A bunch of them, believe it or not, are toys. We just found mm. toys and did what any good prop maker would do is you put greeblies on it. That's a technical term. Look it up. Greeblies are the things that you put on props to make them look more detailed. And then spray painted them all and, and, and made them all super shiny silver. Like it, it, it's all made from scratch. Everything in that pre-show is made from scratch. Nothing in the ride comes from the movie. None of the aliens. Like I read an article on some fan site that talks about how it's 126 animated figures and 30 of those are from the movie. Nope. Nothing is from the movie other than the wormy guys, which we sculpted, and Ethan Bob in the, in the, in the, um, Again, which we also made, and Frank the Pug, which we also made. So even those three were made by us. All the other designs are completely bespoke and made for that this exact. That's great. So I have another um, super nerdy, well, in the weeds question, um, which was this. So were there any scenes, entire scenes or segments that were cut from maybe early drafts of the script that you were holding on to for dear life, and then someone had to tap on the shoulder and said, that's not going to happen, we can't afford it? Uh, were there any big moments like that that you look back and remember? Um, not so much cut because we couldn't afford them, but altered for either to come up with a better version or to um, or to streamline, right? Like a good example is the pre-show. Um, if I ever find it, I'll have to post it. There's a, a cut of the pre-show early on. And Andy knows this because Andy had to rescore it or we had to sort of music edit, if I remember. Um the, the, pre, the pre-show was much more seen with Zed, uh, alien dossiers of all the prisoners, a couple of shots of Will, long, seen with Zed. But that ended up being tedious and boring, and no one was going to stand and watch that. And so Michael Caroni was our in-house editor at Universal, and he deserves a huge amount of credit for that pre-show, for cutting it with that snazzy back and forth between things. And yes, there's moments where we get dialogue across from Zed, but the scenes were originally a lot longer. And, and I, frankly, this is, again, a testament to a collaborative creative effort. I really pushed for the script as is until I saw Michael's cut. I went, you know what? It's better. It's way better. It's more fun. It's got energy. You can, you can nibble at it when you're in the queue. You can hear bits and pieces. You don't have to have your attention on it all the time. So that's a big one. Um, and then the other big change was after the ambush, when you're in Central Park and you see the um, you see the little park setting, and you go into the tunnel. That tunnel, and I've talked about this on other interviews before, that tunnel was going to be to push the red button. Because mm -hmm. in the movie, remember, he hits the button, they go through the Lincoln Tunnel, the vehicles go upside down, and go really fast. So originally, it was going to be a super speed tunnel. If anybody remembers the old people mover gag. Um, mm -hmm. And for a while in the 80s, it was through the world of Tron. 
but it was like uh, uh, we were going to do projections. And so that you hit the button, and it's like you're going really fast. And so we realized we don't have the room. And again, this is to go, a testament to this is when you're working on a project this fast and you get the ride laid out and you finally look at the space you have. And it's like there is no way to get adequate projection technology in this that is going to look good. It's just going to look like crap. And you're never going to feel like you're going fast in that vehicle because it doesn't go fast, right? So yeah. we that was a that was a last that was a panic punt that scene, mm. uh, and and that scene went and I forget where it came from. We knew we wanted somewhere in the ride. Wouldn't it be fun if you shot at each other? But we never really had a reason for it. And then somebody mm. said, "Hey, what if we scan?" I don't I I don't to this day I don't know who said it. But somebody said, "Why don't we like scan the vehicle somehow?" And we, I went, "Oh yes." And yeah. so projection screen could fit in between. That was very thin. We could fit that. And then we did the scanning bar. So that was not, that scene was not planned from the beginning. And then it became wow. like, well, what do we do with the red button? Because you need to do something with the red button. It's got to be a big deal. And we said, well, perfect. And we put that at the very end. It's the thing that blows up the bug from the inside. And that's a big point. Scale. So those were organic changes that happened because of space limitations and time. Yes. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that whole like hallway projection effect. Um, I feel like uh, the, the, oh gosh, it's the bus. You're on the party bus. It's the supercharged. I forget the IP name, but. Um, oh, the uh, Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious. I, I, forgot, I forgot that the other day too, but yeah. you're in the hallway for the first segment. And I think it's a very effective effect in that ride in the first yeah. portion of it. I was pretty, yeah. I was like, this is really fun. Yeah, it is good, and and that's the kind of gag we wanted. But it just the, the space of that of the space that we had, and the view shed of looking down into the next scene, like there was no way to disguise that you were going that the scenery ahead of you was really slow. We look, we talked for a while about pointing the vehicles to the side, and only had like um like the gag that they now do in Forbidden Journey with the flu powder, where you're mm-hmm. looking at the screen, but it, the, the, the 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 flu funnel is basically following you as you go. We talked about that for a while. Like, could we rush forward and have fans above you and strafe the wall and strafe the projection? And it just, we, the more we looked at it, the more we're like, you can look to the side and see that you're not moving. Like, there's no way to get a protected view shed. A lot of the gags that you can pull on a ride like um, Fast and Furious, or more importantly, like Spider-Man and Transformers, mm-hmm. that people may not realize. The reason half of those gags work in that ride, the reason it feels like you're going fast and being flung through the air, is because your view shed is completely blocked. Like those yeah. walls go up to here, you can't see the floor. Men in Black isn't that. You can see everything. And so the, the, those sort of decisions went out the window, and we had to come up with more clever ways to use those. That's cool. So I have a question for you. For, and actually, I can bring on a, a couple people for this one. Um, um, this is from More Than Thrills. That's got to be a fake name. What is the best way to make yourself appealing to entertainment companies? I went to school for film, but I really want to, to be involved in people design in any capacity, really. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jason, you want to take this one? Let's do it. I have I have some opinions, <laughs> but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh it's um, you know, <laughs> I want to say uh, just as a preface to it that there are so many different ways to get into it. Um, for me in particular, it was just writing all this theme stuff. Um, I was working at Universal Orlando as an operator, um, opening, working around around the parks and opened a couple of attractions, Men in Black included, uh, Revenge of the Mummy. And eventually I needed, uh, eventually someone 
who was working with, um, I think Mark Thomas with on track themes. Um, he, Mark needed a, um, needed someone to come in and write. And, uh, and I was there, someone went, Oh, I, I, I've got the perfect person <laughs> who knows it, <laughs> who can get, who can uh, get you in there. And, uh, that started my whole course of, I eventually moved out to California and now I'm a uh, show writer and creative director for themed entertainment projects. And I never would have thought, never would have guessed when I was working at Universal that I would have been there. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's one of those, just like a lot of factions of the entertainment industry. It's one of those who, you know, it's getting out there, making the connections, being passionate about what, what you want to do. And uh, there's no right time that it will happen, but sometimes it just works out that way. The universe just kind of the universe and you <laughs> kind of connects. <laughs> So thanks, Jason. I, um, I have a, so what I would say to this, uh, John, more than thrill. So I'm always helping out with the. There's organizations that you need to get involved with. Uh, the first is the Theme Entertainment Association, uh, the TEA. They have tons of programs. I'm not sure if you're recently out of school or not, but they have something called Next Gen, which is very big in Orlando and in Los Angeles, and also there's clubs around the the country, really. Um, and so that's that's a great organization to get with. Also, IAPA. Um, uh, there's also something called Slice Creative Network, which is for freelancers, uh, mostly in Orlando, but they're also expanding across the country. Um, so those are great resources of how to get in. Um, and it's about, uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll gladly talk to you offline and talk to you and recommendations. I'm Patrick, uh, Kling. You can find me and I'll happily uh, talk to you all day long. Um, Andy, do you have any, any thoughts about how to get into the themed entertainment industry? Well, uh, I think the key word that he mentioned was design. And I, I, I wonder if he really understands what that means in terms of theme parks. I mean, I wonder, you know, if he's just thinking, you know, about, you know, designing rides and, you know, from a story perspective or, you know, a design perspective. Because if you if you want to come at it from a design perspective, I mean, you've got to be either an artist or an engineer or both. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's, there's few people... Um, that I that I know, I mean, I think Jason McManus is one of them, you know, who he is an exceptional artist and he's a writer, you know, and, you know, he does both, you know, equally well and is, you know, he, and is rightfully, uh, you know, a creative director now uh, for the same company as Dave. Well, I guess he's not a creative director, he's an art director, but anyway, um, he fills the role of creative director a lot. Um, and you know, like like you said, you know, all the organizations and stuff. I think, you know, what I've been, what I tell people, like you brought up IAPA, I think that um, just showing up and hanging out at the TEA booth at IAPA at certain times of the day, you will meet pretty much everyone you need to meet yeah. in the entire industry all at once. Yeah. You just hang out, talk to people uh be the uh, and i think another thing that's important too in the industry that is underrated is to be the kind of person that people want to have around yeah totally. you know because you know a lot of these projects go on for years and years and it's like you know kind of like being in a relationship or even being married you know you're in close quarters and talking to these people and dealing with them you know day in and day out and you know you don't want to work with a bunch of assholes if you yeah, we, we, have, we have a strict <laughs> we have a strict no asshole policy where we work. Yes, life's yeah. too short. Life's too short. You, you, yeah. it, you have to be able to fit in with a lot of different personalities. Yeah, I mean it's one thing you know you can defend your ideas and and you know what have you, but at the end of the day, you know it's a very collaborative medium. Um, I like to say it's uh, it's uh, 
filmmaking with aerospace. <laughs> That's a really good analogy. Yeah. I, I think that some, something that Jason said that I think is really important was that, you know, he said he focused on being a writer. And um, I, I, I will answer uh, um, Michael's question in the same way I answer it when we do our TEA next gen speed dating when we meet new students that are studying this because there are programs that feed into us and and to, to Andy's point design means a lot of things are you an artist are you an illustrator are you a set designer are you an engineer uh, are you a mechanical engineer you're electrical engineer there's just so many different ways you can go and our industry pulls from all of them what I tell people is you need to have a solid elevator pitch for who you are and what your talent is and it can't just be I want to be a designer it can't you can't say, I want to be you. Like I have people very <laughs> flatteringly say, I want to be you. And I'm like, you can't because there's only one me and there's only one Andy and there's only one Jason Pugh. And it's like mm -hmm. that, that some of it is luck and timing. Jason and I both lucked out and got our, got to be known as writers. Uh, and we lucked, and that is a path that we had to hitched our wagon to and held on as hard as we could. Yeah. But, <laughs> but trust me, there, there's a lot of luck going on. But the other thing was, I didn't make, I didn't, I didn't sell myself as anything but a writer for a very long time. I'm like, I'm a writer. I'm gonna focus on that. And I think it's important to, in your elevator pitch for you who you are in this industry to have a single skill set to start with. It's great if you're a fan. It's great if you're. A, we love generalists. We love people who love all of it. You know, I know enough about ride systems and technology and video projection and all those things to be dangerous, but I don't design. So. It's, it's about being a generalist, and a, a generalist enough to be conversant and enthusiastic about all the disciplines. But if you don't get into that elevator pitch with a single skill set, mm. you're done. You're, no one's going to talk to you. And yeah. so, um, and a skill set you can back up and say you're really good at. Like, I'm studying CAD, but I'm really a writer. That doesn't cut it. Right? Yeah. And then, and this is the downer. And I hate to leave it on a downer, but I'm going to say to everybody that wants to get into this industry, especially if you're going to get into something like writing a creative direction. But this applies to the whole the whole industry, but especially those kind of positions. You are picking a career that is like skydiving onto the head of a pin. Like no other design industry. Because every other design industry has distribution channels, right? You design toys, there's a million places to sell them. You design... You make movies, great. There's a place, a lot of places you could sell it. You want to build a theme park? There's like a couple of places in the world where that happens, and it doesn't happen at the same frequency that other products get created. And so, yes, this is a great industry. We love it, and we're lucky to be in it. And I encourage everybody that loves it to really try hard to get into it. But man, it is it is timing and and knowing who you it's timing and knowing who you are is ninety nine percent of it. I forget who it was. It was a motivational speaker. Uh, the, uh, the final, the last lecture. That guy, remember that? Oh, Randy Pausch. Yeah, Randy Pausch. He said it's 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 actually easier to become an astronaut than an Imagineer. It is. Yeah. It <laughs> is. It is. And and so competition is stiff. And if all you can say is I love theme parks and I want to design them, next, yeah. show me show me who you are and show me what your core skill set is, and and you know maybe we'll talk. Make yourself indispensable. Yeah. We, yeah. we have like maybe, I mean, do you think you can be on for like one more question, Dave? Maybe two minutes? Yeah, yeah I got a couple minutes. Okay, perfect. So I wanted to kind of talk to everybody about this. Like, I just opened a pretty big project and it's your baby. Oh, right. And then it's Kelly's open. Right and Sorry. What's that? Kelly's so right in her comment. She said, I would also tell people to find someone who will tell you the truth about your elevator pitch uh, and your portfolio. 
Absolutely. Like, no. I, I, I try to be the, the, the iron glove, the iron fist in the velvet glove. Like, I got to mm-hmm. tell you the truth. I'm going to do it nicely, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Anyway, sorry, Patrick. <laughs> oh, no problem. No, that's good. Kelly, Kelly's a rock star. Hey, Kelly, thanks for watching. Um, I want to talk about opening day. So I don't know if any of you were there for opening day. I presume Jason hopefully was. Um, but well, <laughs> there's like the moment you hand it over to operations or the last day on the set or, the, you know, in the field, maybe, maybe it's opening day. Um, what was that feeling like? I'd love to hear how that was to see your baby come to life. Like that's pretty amazing. Uh, so Dave, yeah, while you, I know you have a few more minutes left, so. Yeah, yeah. it's hard. That, that moment's both wonderful and terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's great because you get to see people enjoying it and it's and and it, it's a little wistful because it's like your kid going off to college like they're going to be in the hands of somebody else now and you need to let them go right there's a separation. separation but there's yeah. also like there's a moment and this goes on usually a couple of weeks or months when like when you're doing closeout where all of a sudden the security guard that was there for all of construction is not there anymore and asks mm. you for your badge and doesn't know who you are, and you realize that it isn't yours anymore. Right? Yeah. I can't walk into mm-hmm. backstage at Men in Black twenty years later. Trust me, nobody knows who the fuck I am. And <laughs> yeah. like, in, there is a moment. There is a moment that's very hard where you literally have to rip it out of your heart and go, "This is not mine anymore." Like, I have fans ask me all the time, "Why is this broken or that broken? Or how come they don't do this anymore?" I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, I don't know. It ain't mine." <laughs> Cool. Dave, Dave, thank you. So I know you have to run off to a call. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm sure you'll be back. Um, We appreciate it. Um, So thank you very much. We're going to continue on with the show to to wrap things up a little bit. See you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, Dave. Uh, So Jason, same question to you. What was your opening day experience? Well, my opening day experience, I, uh, I remember I was frozen at unload. Because, you know, during the media day, it was just like, everybody just be, just stay in your position until this whole thing is over. So I heard the booms from unload of the, of the pyro going off. Um, it was only later on once I was able to catch the news and see what, what, what was happening out there. <laughs> Let me see. Yeah. Um, but it was really a thrill in hindsight because I was there at unload. I got to see the reactions of everybody coming off the ride, which was a lot of fun. Um, I didn't have a neuralizer, an official neuralizer prop of my own, but I bought one from, I think I got, got it from eBay. It was a, it was a toy from Burger King. Mm. Uh, so I had this little neuralizer toy and my, my, my shtick there on opening day was, was whenever guests would come off and they were laughing about how, how much fun it was, I would figure, well, Agent J's neuralizer flash at the end didn't stick, obviously. So I'll just I'll just get him again. I put on the shades, flashed him again, and uh, my favorite moment of that day, uh, by far, was eventually there's a car that comes around, and Will Smith and Will and Rip Torn are in the are in the back row of it, right next to each other, and Will's just going like, "That was great! Oh, that was great! That was great! That was great!" And he's and I said like, "Yeah." Uh, you're not going to remember it though. And I put on my shades, realized <laughs> him, flashed up, flashed him up. And, and he went, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> trademark. I can't do it, but his trademark Will Smith, ha ha, you know, at me. And I just went, wow. <laughs> That's great. 
So when, when were you brought onto the project? So how, you were opening to like test and adjust crew or oh, how, 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 uh, so? opening team? Um, I was over at uh, Back to the Future mm-hmm. um, in late late uh, 1999, and uh, I was at Greeter one day, and I was doing kind of dancing along to the BGM um, that was coming out from the from Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Um, I, whenever uh, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance kind of music played, I would kind of do a little George McFly kind of shuffle. <laughs> and I was just having a really good time. There was no one else around. Beautiful morning. And the supervisor walked by and he said, you look like you're having a lot of fun. And I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I, what, no complaints. It's yeah. Beautiful day. Great music to listen to. And he said, would you like to work at Madam Black? I'm opening this over here, and he pointed. He pointed to the construction walls, <laughs> adjacent. The two attractions are adjacent, and I went, um, "Yes." Yeah, where I sign. So he got me onto the team. So I was part of the hard hat crew, like just going through, making sure everything was clean, learning about the attraction, um, working with the leadership team to figure out how this attraction actually operates, mm-hmm. and the supervisors were able to create a, a training manual from that, an operating manual. Uh, based on what was handed down to them. How, so you how, literally got recruited. I got recruited. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> how functional was the attraction when you first got on on uh you know uh first on the team I I I can't quite remember for sure but I'm pretty sure that they had not started cycling yet. Mm-hmm. Because I remember it being a big deal that oh vehicles are moving. This is what they look like when they move. Oh my gosh. It's always yeah. this kind of guessing game. I was hmm? walking the track. My visit there was the day before they started cycling. Ah, yeah. Cool. Well, we would walk the track a lot and kind yeah, of yeah. Out, but see the first day the vehicles were moving, it's like they're moving and that's how they look when they move. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was nice meeting you. Um I'm yeah. kind of surprised we never crossed paths, but I also am in Orlando, Florida. Um, thanks for sharing in our 20th anniversary extravaganza. Um, so thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> what a nice guy. <laughs> thanks, Jason. Um, and thanks, Dave Kyle, for joining us. So, folks, this is the Untitled Themed Entertainment Design Lockdown Show. Um, we're planning to do this every week. Uh, I, I actually think Monday nights at 9 o'clock Eastern – 6 p.m. Orlando, or, you know, sorry, I'd be first time. 6 slash 9 uh, works pretty well uh, for me. So we'll probably just keep doing it at this time. Um, and next week, uh, you know, there's so much news that's kind of been piling up. Um, this isn't a political show. This is really more about just kind of talking about what's going on. There's a lot of speculation about how the theme parks are going to reopen, whether that's June, whether that's July. It's hard to say. Um so we'll see how that goes um, from Doug. Uh, yeah, this is on YouTube and it's on Facebook. We're not going to delete it or take it down. Uh, you'll be able to go as soon as we end this in about five, 10 minutes, you can go back and watch all that magic. All right. Don't worry. We're not going to leave you hanging. Um, so we'll be back next Monday. Um, we'll pick up, we'll do some sort of topic between now and then it's really fun having guests on. So I'm sure we'll, we'll uh, bribe somebody to come on the show, um, share their insights, but thanks for joining us, everybody. All right. Thanks everybody. <laughs>